0: I too would again greet you this morning in Jesus' name, and I trust that the uh, the riches of God's grace and His peace would be upon us as we have gathered together. I want to thank you for uh, your prayers throughout this week as uh, we have attempted to look at the uh, the enormity of our salvation as we have it in Jesus Christ. Um, Yes, so thank you for continuing to pray, even now, as we continue to be here together and look at uh, some of the uh, the great things that God has for us uh, and that are included in the, the doctrine of our salvation. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I want to assure you that there are others praying for us, too, here as we're gathered. Uh, I've always, in the last number of years, I've had uh, two of my siblings uh, pray for me uh, when I uh, go out and, and preach in churches. Of course, one of those has been my brother Andy, who is uh, uh, an experiencing a uh, uh, sort of end-of-life stage uh, at this particular time. And he's been one of my prayer warriors, as I said to some of the men uh, yesterday, last evening, that... My brother Andy is not a theologian by by any means, but uh, he he knows how to pray, <laughs> and uh, he's been one of those men that uh, one of those that I've been able to depend on will pray for me uh, as as I preach. As he said, he said, "You preach and I pray," uh, and so. Um, but also, uh, my my last sister to pass on, who passed on about eight months ago, my sister Anna. Uh, she was bedfast. fast. She was in her 90s. She was bed fast for the last number. Not bedfast, fast, but she was. She couldn't leave her home. She was uh, homebound, I should say, in the last number of years um, because of health reasons. And, but I would always call her when I would be on the way somewhere to preach, and, and I could depend on her to, to uh, pray for me. And now she has gone on to her reward, and but at her funeral, her youngest brother Dave came to me and said, "You know, I want to take my mother's place in praying for you." So uh, I just had a text this morning from Dave saying he is praying for us. I also had a text and a phone call, several texts and a phone call from three of my daughters this morning and saying they're praying for us, and I'm also I'm also sure that. The uh, the faith Christian that chapter is praying for us here this morning. So uh, it's a blessing to be undergirded by prayer as we gather here this morning. Uh, before I uh, go on with a message uh, that is really a question, the title is the question, which is, "Shall we continue in sin?" From Romans chapter six and uh, verses one through twenty-three. Before I go into that, uh, I I want to just um, take care of your curiosity about how I got out of the ice hole uh, that I spoke about yesterday. When I fell through the ice, I thought it was thick ice, uh, great faith in thick uh, in in uh, in thick ice. Um, uh, but but it was actually thin ice, and uh, and I went through. Well, as uh, as I felt myself going down into the icy water, I I just sort of threw my rifle in front of me as I was moose hunting, and, and uh, there, I couldn't touch the bottom. And I had snow shoes on, uh, and uh, I, uh, I admitted there was, a, there was a, a bush growing out of the, this, this, the uh, swampy area of that at that time that just happened to be right beside me. I sort of lanched over and, and grabbed the bush, and I was able to, to pull myself up out of the water onto the ice and it helped me out, and I was able to get out. And I was only a quarter mile from my snow machine, and uh, where I had parked. And my hunting uh, buddy, who was uh, one of the men of our church, was back in the woods. And uh, anyhow, I I was able to get there. The the moment I stepped out of the water, my my all my clothes. I was dressed heavily. All my clothes froze solid, which was really a blessing because the wind couldn't get through them. Although I was I was going moving toward hypothermia, by the time I got to my snow machine, um, I mean I was shaking, and uh, but as quick as I could, I had emergency equipment on the snow machine. I I gathered I I, I began a fire, and one of the lifesavers in Northwestern Ontario are, is birch bark. I mean you can take birch bark and you can light it when it's wet, and it'll 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 catch a flame and. So I gathered birch bark, kindling, and other wood, and I began a fire as quickly as I could, and And uh, I sat there by the fire and uh, began to warm up. And so uh, uh, it all turned out okay, uh, by the grace of God. And so uh, I'm grateful to be here uh, in, uh, again this morning and, and tell you the story. <laughs> so uh, blessings to you as we continue. To look at the uh, amazing Word of God this morning, and as you know, I'm going to be looking at the uh, Romans chapter six this morning, and uh, it's uh, the question from Romans chapter six, and verse one, that is the title for my message: "Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound?" Is the question, and I want to speak to you this morning uh, about our freedom from the tyranny of, of sin's power. And so, in a sense, we're moving from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification this morning. We've been looking at our justification the last few evenings and, and the basis for it. Uh, but for the sake of analysis, it helps us understand that justification has to do with our relationship with God, as I've been saying and emphasizing our standing with God, with being right with God, through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You know, Romans 5, 6-9 says it very well when it says, "...for when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die." But God commended His love toward us in, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being just now justified by His blood, we shall see, be saved from wrath from, saved from through Him. And so uh, justification uh, has to do with the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And, and And by us embracing that, we are made right with God. That's the simplest way I can put it. So, Jesus' offering of himself as a sin sacrifice was both vicarious and he was efficacious. Uh, by vicarious, I mean it's something done for someone else. It, so, it, he did it for us. It wasn't for himself. It did it for us. On, uh, and uh, effic- to be efficacious means it's something that is effective. And, and so, his death, uh, his suffering, death, and, and, and the shedding of his blood, What's, what's effective in changing our relationship with God uh, and, uh, and, and making us righteous and causing us to be righteous. Um, and so, yes, yeah, sanctification, uh, uh, justification has to do with uh, a, re, a right relationship with, uh, with God, uh, bringing us into right relationship with God. But sanctification has to do with, uh, more has to do with our relationship with sin, with sin that dwells within us. And and though Romans chapter 6 does not use the word or the term sanctification, this is really what Romans 6 is all about as far as I'm concerned. It has to do with how through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he, he, God has set us free from what in Romans chapter eight and verse two is he calls the law of sin and death? Uh, what a, from the tyranny of indwelling sin, the the power of inherent sin, uh, the the sin principle that has polluted human nature ever since Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden It's often referred to as our sin nature. I have a little problem with uh, with that, with calling it that, but be that as it may, you understand what what, we, what I mean when we talk about uh, what we often refer to as a sin nature. Sam Pichy, who uh, was a Mennonite the preacher of the past century, had, wrote a little pamphlet on Romans 6 and 7 and 8. and says that Romans 6 is the new birth passage of the book of Romans. And I... I, I, could, I, I um, Yes, I consider that to be an accurate assessment of the essence of Romans chapter six. Well, Romans chapter five then introduces us to Romans chapter six, and that's why I asked you last night to uh, to begin reading in Romans chapter five, uh, because uh, in Romans chapter five, Paul concludes uh, his exposition of justification by faith by enumerating at least five. Five blessings of justification, uh, and begins to explain the fact that through Adam all came under the tyranny of sin uh, and and death, uh, and that uh, but in and through Christ all are are not can be made righteous. Verse nineteen, and uh, that through the uh, the the through Christ. Yes, so um, that's verse seventeen of uh, Romans chapter five. Um, now, I recognize that many of our evangelical friends do not believe we're made righteous in justification, but, uh, but that we're just forensically counted to be so. Well, as I said last night, I have a major disagreement with that, and I believe that in, in ju- justification we're also made righteous, and I'm grateful for that. But Romans 5 introduces us to Romans 6 in three ways. Uh, it gives us the five spiritual blessings. the effects of justification in verses one to eleven uh, uh, which is that we have peace with God, we have access to His grace now, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of god. and and that's that's verse two. Uh, do you know that do you, do you notice that it says we now stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Does that mean a future glory? Well, I, I think I believe he is also referring some, to something that happens here and now. You know, we we emphasize the fact in verse three and talked about what it means when uh, when Paul said, uh, "All have sinned and come short of the glory of God." Folks, we don't as as uh, uh, as justified and sanctified uh, believers, we don't have to continue to come short of the glory of God. Now we can stand and 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 rejoice in the hope. Of, it, of fulfilling and experiencing the glory of God, even in this life, uh, so that we don't we don't have to continue to come short of the glory of God all the time. Isn't that a blessing? <laughs> it's one of the blessings of our of, of our justification, and then we also glory in tribulation as well. Verses three through five in Romans five, where from wrath. Uh, we are, we joy in God, and, and that means we rejoice, we exult, not only in the depths gives us, but in God himself. And I trust that we we uh, are able to do that here this morning. Now, but then Romans 5 explains how human nature, uh, how every man and woman was polluted with the genetics of sin, if I could call it that, how sin and death became ruling tyrants. In the uh, uh, human personality. Uh, in Beginning in verse 12 in Romans 5, Paul begins to show how the sin principle was introduced into the family of Adam by Adam's one act of disobedience. Yes, uh, we've emphasized the fact earlier in, uh, as we looked at uh, what God has done for us and how that we were sinners, but we emphasized the fact, uh, looked at the fact how that in an extensive way uh, the in the early part of chapters you know, one, two, and three, we're we're brought all, brought into the courtroom of heaven and indicted and, and indicted as guilty be sinners before holy God. Now, in, here in Romans five, he he brings us. I like to think of it as him bringing us now into God's laboratory, not the courtroom now, but in God's laboratory. Puts us under the microscope, as it were, and, and shows us how the human personality is not only infected and not only has to deal with sins, but it has been infected with the sin principle uh, and, uh, and, and how that, and then in Romans 6, he is going to emphasize, uh, show us how that uh, God has delivered us from the sin principle. Well, the the third the third way that Romans five introduces us to Romans six is that, it, and I don't know if you noticed that you you couldn't hardly miss it uh, in Romans five, but uh, uh, Romans five emphasizes what I call the hopelessness. Of our redemption by copiousness, I mean the plenteousness of our the redemption, the greatness of our redemption, and he does so by using the word much more. And he uses that that those words five five times, if I'm correct, in verse nine, ten, fifteen, seventeen, and twenty. He he says much more than, much more than, and and to me, he's emphasizing the copiousness, the plenteousness uh, of of our redemption. Uh, you know the um, um, how that, and to me, he's, he's emphasizing the fact that that Christ has more than taken care of the devastation Adam introduced through sin and disobedience. You know, uh, and so uh, not only has Christ dealt with the devastation of the fall, but he opened up to us a fountain of grace that enables us to live victoriously over sin and to reign in life in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, that copiousness, that plenteousness. that that has to do with the, the wonderfulness and the enormity of our salvation. You know, putting this into accounting terms, uh, let me say it this way: that Christ at Calvary and in the resurrection not only dealt with the loss that we experienced through Adam, but made and, and made so that the books balance in in the economy of God but he left a positive balance on the books. I like to think of it in that way. And, and, and he emphasizes this by talking about our much more redemption that we have in Christ. Just a final note on the, uh, the use of the term much more. Uh, as it's used in verse 20, when he says, Moreover the law entered... That the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I want you to notice something about the use of the much more this fifth time, the last time he uses it here uh, because uh, the the uh, if you, if you Check the Greek text and the use of the word "much more." You discover that the fifth time that he uses the term "much more" in Greek, it's a little bit different. Uh, he uses a little different word to to talk about uh, much more how that grace did much more abound. Um, and, and, and he uses a word that puts this much more into into the superlative. You know what I mean? You know we say good, better, best. Well, best is the superlative of good. And so he uses a word to 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 place this uh, term much more into the superlative here. Um, and so this is the way, if I would translate it as, as I understand it, given in the in the original text, is is where sin abounded, grace did super abundantly much more abound. Now isn't isn't that putting it into the superlative? He <laughs> super abundantly much more abound. You know, I like that. <laughs> um in in the German uh it it uh, goes it goes from using the expression feel mehr much more to feel messier, meaning much mightier <laughs> uh but and so yes uh well now um you sort of now by this time uh, know how how I preach, right? <laughs> I, I hope you're okay with this because uh, been, I spent I want to. I, I, I'm sort of. I have this this drive to to just help us get things into perspective before we get to the text itself, and and I guess I do so because I feel it helps us to then grasp the text in a in a in a, in a better way. So, uh, just allow me to uh, uh, reflect on on some things uh, and uh, attempt to get Romans 6 into perspective. Uh, as I indicated, the truth of Romans 6 uh, is the foundational basis for for victorious Christian living. In a sense, Romans 6 is the gateway to Romans 8 that we'll be looking at in the next hour. Where where the victorious Christian life is defined and ends with that triumphant cry, triumphant cry when it says, "We're more than conquerors to Him that loved us." Now that's also putting it into the relative, isn't it? How can you be more than a conqueror? <laughs> well, I believe there's there's reasons why he said it that way, but I'm going to leave that for now. Um, but I, I want you to. I want you to understand that I believe that Paul is not overstating himself when he uses that superlative uh, to remind us that we can live victoriously. Um, And and so, but uh, because I, you know, sometimes, sometimes as we go through life day by day, we come to the place where we feel like, hey, this whole thing, this whole matter of, Victorious Christian living is some, somehow elusive. You ever ever felt that? <laughs> Do you always feel victorious? <laughs> Probably not. I don't. Maybe you're holier than I am. But, um, yes, I, I, I just want to reinforce the fact that Victorious Christian living is not an illusion. It's not that we, this side of the resurrection, are free from the impulsion to sin. But we can overcome our sinful impulsions. And 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 that somewhat, somehow defines the victorious Christian living. It's a matter of overcoming, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, our sinful impulsions. So I believe that Romans 6 explains how we are free from that power of sin in our personal lives. And again, I say this is not theory. This is divine revelation we're looking at. Because Romans 6 reveals how God has made inoperative, and I use that term uh, deliberately, it, he has made uh, inoperative that insidious nature of sin in us, that law of sin and death inherent in in our human nature. Romans six shows us how God has dealt not with sins committed. He he shows he reveals that to us in Romans four and uh, three, at the end of Romans three and 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 chapter five, chapter four, especially uh, through justification. Uh, because in justification, uh, we also have the forgiveness of sin. And so uh, Romans 6 uh, shows us how, how God has dealt not with sins committed, but with the issue of sin as a ruling power in us that would ensnare us and enslave us and bring us under sin bondage. No doubt, Paul had this in view uh, right from the get-go. When in Romans uh, chapter one and verse sixteen, he said, "Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all them that believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And and, uh, and and we need to understand that an important part of the gospel is not only the forgiveness of sins, but is how God has delivered us from the power of sin. And that is the divine possibility in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the and the work He does in us. Someone has said that the legalist attempts to deal with sin by making a rule against it. The, the moralist attempts to deal with sin by riches self-discipline. Have you tried that? You <laughs> found it works. The man in Romans 7 tries that. The humanist simply denies that sin exists. Remember, I told you the story about the Jew. We Jewish man, we we sat beside on on our 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 trip from Oklahoma City to Washington D.C. He was denying the existence of sin itself. But Paul, in Romans 6, reveals to us how God dealt with sin through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, now, I'm going to come to the text. For you. And uh, uh, I would like for you to stand uh, as I read all of Romans 7 at this time. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that me about God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Knowing ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death, therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For in, for he that is dead is free from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, death dieth no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he dies, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed, in, unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members, your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What, shall, what then shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether it's sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. For But God be saying that ye were the servants, and the word servant here is actually slave, du, uh, doulos, as we noticed the first evening, uh, because... God, be thanked that you were the doulos of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then free from sin, ye became the doulos, the, the slaves, the servant of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. So, even so now, yield you, your members' servants or slaves' doulos to, the righteous, to, to righteousness unto holiness, for well, when you were the 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 doulos or the the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin, you become the doulos. become a doulos to God. You have you have now your your you have your fruit unto holiness and the end of everlasting life. Uh, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that a wonderful passage of Scripture? You may be seated. May the Lord open our eyes to at least some of the, the realities of this passage. That's my prayer. That's what I desire for you uh, this uh, this morning. And I, and again, here is one of those passages that I, I just know that I can uh, tell you everything. I can explain everything that is said here. Uh, but uh, I encourage you to, uh, to continue to seek uh, enlightenment in, the, in this passage and uh, just search for the gold that is here in this passage, that soul will so enrich your life and bless your life. I, I'm going to ask the, uh, that the handouts to be given out at this time, uh, our te- my teaching outline on this particular section. Um, I want, of course, you, you will notice that Romans 6 begins with a rhetorical question in verse 1. The question is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the question is anticipated because of the statement that, that Paul had made in chapter 5 in verse 20 when he said, where sin abounded, grace did super, early, super abundantly much more abound. And so a misunderstanding of this statement, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, could cause some to think that the more I sin, the greater opportunity for God's grace to superabound. So if my sin magnifies God's grace, sinning is not such a bad thing after all. In theological terms, this kind of skewed thinking is called antinomianism. Antinomianism. It's a good word to add to your vocabulary. <laughs> antinomianism. Bonhoeffer, uh, in his book on discipleship, calls this kind of skewed thinking, keep grace. Such thinking misunderstands God's grace. You see, God's grace, that is referenced four times in chapter 5 and three times in chapter 6, liberates us from sin and is not not a license to sin. And and so, uh, uh, we we must not uh, assume that we can keep on sinning. Bonhoeffer further critiques critiques those who, in effect, say, I've been forgiven and I will go on being forgiven, whatever I do, so I can do whatever I want. Again, that's antinomianism. That says, I've been forgiven, I will go on being forgiven, whatever I do, so I can do whatever I want. That is skewed thinking, that's mixed up thinking. What I want us to see and to consider is that Paul answers this rhetorical question in four different ways in, in the rest of, uh, uh, of, of Romans 6. And, and uh, you're, you have the, um, the the teaching outline, uh, my teaching outline on this session in hand. And so uh, just take a look at it briefly. Let me explain what I'm doing here in this teaching outline. I, I'm, I'm going to reflect um, on on the relationship of sin and grace and sin, uh, and, and then I'm going to uh, uh, basically attempt to, uh, to uh, give exposition to the first 13 verses, uh, the first 11 verses, I should say, of Romans chapter 6, and I want you to know, rest easily, if I don't get past that, it's okay, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really aiming at those first 11 verses this morning in this message. That is what I'm focusing in on. And uh, I want you to know that right here from the get-go. Uh, and, and so, But I'm, I'm, I'm saying that Paul, in a, in a real way, as I look at this passage, uh, that uh, Paul answers his rhetorical questions in, in four ways. In other words, he gives four reasons why we should not sin. Why a, a, a Christian, why one who has been justified uh, uh, and one who has been sanctified and is going to experience the process of sanctification, of why, why such a one uh, should not sin. And uh, so there are, there are four reasons, and, and I'm just going to deal with the first one, because once you sort of get the picture of what Paul is doing here, I believe you can you can uh, follow through on the other three as well. But the four reasons uh, are this. Um, on, on the front of the first page, uh, reason number one, his answer is definitely not, one should definitely not continue in sin, uh, that, uh, so that grace might abound, because... And the reason is because sinning is inconsistent with what took place in the economy of God when we were baptized into Jesus Christ. And that covers the first 11 verses. And then, the second reason, uh, he, he doesn't doesn't say this, but, but it, uh, I, I see this. The second reason is that... Uh, uh, that it's unnecessary to sin. <laughs> you need not sin, because sin's dominion has been broken. That's verses 12-14. to And the third reason is, on the second page, on the back side of your, your handout, is that, you know, first he says, definitely, you definitely should not sin, you need not sin, and now the warning becomes even stronger. It said you must not sin, because it would make sin your master again. And you see as you read verses 15 through 19, and then finally the fourth reason it even makes it stronger to say "You better not sin." Have you ever told this to yourself? <laughs> you better not do that. You, maybe you start out by saying you shouldn't do that, but you you also better not do that because. And so, uh, the fourth reason, as I see it, uh, Paul says, "You better not sin because it would it would end it would you would end up in death." If you do, if you continue in sin. And and he ends with that that verse 23 where it says, because the way to sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the the first definitive answer is what I want to explore with you further uh, in the uh, um, time we have left. And uh, Either I'm going to have to talk faster and you listen faster, or else we won't get through this. (laughs) Uh, But uh, shall we continue sin that grace may abound? Well, um, so reason number one. Definitely we should not continue sin, because continuing sin would be incongruous, it would be incongruous with what took place when you were baptized into Jesus Christ, verses 2 through 11. You see, I, I see that that understanding these first 11 verses is crucial to understanding our freedom from the tyranny of sin's power, our freedom from the sin and power of indwelling sin. I, You know, I know I'm not going to be able to fully uh, and definitively explain all the truth here. I'm just going to be able to touch on them. I encourage you to, to search deeper. But uh, because when I attempt to give expositions to these 11 verses, I feel like I'm trying to wrap a package with a piece of paper that's too small. Have you ever tried to do that? <laughs> that's the way I feel this morning as I, I look at this particular passage. Keep it in Keeping a number of things in mind will help bring the script of truth found in verses two through eleven into perspective. And the first one is that the key to what it means to having died with Christ and having been buried with him and to have been resurrected with him is, I believe, given in verse five when he says, For if we have been planted in the light together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Uh, notice the phrase in the likeness of. Um, I, I believe that uh, we need to understand what Paul means when he says, in the likeness of. Think prototype here, uh, uh, not mystical union. In other words, what happened to Jesus, Paul is saying, what happened to Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection happened to me in a spiritual way, in a spiritual dimension in the economy of God. And this helps pull what is said here out of the abstract and, and keeps it from becoming highly mystical. And so, think prototype here. Uh, in other words, our death to sin is is and was in the likeness of in the similitude of Jesus death and and, and secondly, our burial uh, was also our burial with him was also like unto his burial in the likeness of and in the similitude of jesus' burial well before i before I lose track of that. Let me ask you a question. Why does Paul... Why does Paul talk about the burial of Jesus? Not just the death, but the burial. Why, does, why is the burial important? Well, you see, burial, even in our day, burial of a body confirms that death has actually taken place, right? You see, Christ's death and our death to sin was not imagined. It was not a pretended death. It was a real death. Burial proved that. You don't bury someone if he is or she is in, in a coma or in some state of unconsciousness. So burial was proof of the death. So something actual actually happened here In the economy of God, when I was baptized into Jesus Christ, some spiritual dynamic took place, something changed in my relationship to sin, sin that was operative in me, in my human nature, and and now that becomes inoperative. I'll say more about that a little bit later on. But, so, our death was in the likeness of, our burial was in the likeness of, and my spiritual resurrection is also in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection. Well, there's, there's so much I, I should say about that, but I'm going to have to pass on. But but notice that, please note that all of this is so real and true in the divine economy that Paul puts these spiritual truths and realities in concrete terms. In other words, we died with Him. Our old man was crucified with Him. Past tense. Verse 3. We were buried with Him. Verse 4. Past tense. We are raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection, present tense, and we shall be future tense. In our physical resurrection, we shall be in the likeness of his physical resurrection. Praise God for that. Can you imagine that? <laughs> no, we can't. It's beyond our imagination. It's over. A second thing to keep in mind that will help get these truths into perspective is that, you know, and I, I, I say this very carefully, but I have to reinforce it every time uh, to my students at SCDI. We we also need to uh, to see that Romans six two through eleven is not referring to this matter of me dying to self daily. I'm saying that very carefully. You see, uh, but every time we come to this passage in Romans 6, uh, as if I ask the students if they understand what what Romans 6 is all about, I'll say, "Oh yeah, we know what what it's all about." It has to do with me me crucifying self and dying to self daily, folks. Uh-uh. You see, crucifying self, dying to self, is 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 is, is, is our action? Is what what we do through by the power of the spirits? But what he's talking about here is not our action. We're being acted upon in this passage. Check it out carefully. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that 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 dying to self and crucifixion of self by the power of the Spirit is not, is not important. But I'm just saying that that's really not what he's talking about here. Okay? We also need to get certain phrases and words found in, in these 9-10 these, uh, verses into proper perspective if you want to properly understand the truth that is caused here you know i I recognize I'm, I'm the first one to recognize here this morning that some of these phrases can be interpreted in different ways. I allow for that but but just allow me to sort of give ex, ex, exposition to expostulate uh, on some of these phrases and words for your consideration and that that's really the main focus of what I want to do here this morning uh, in, in, the, uh, in this in this session um, and so Looking at, I, I highlight four phrases that we need to understand in the first eleven verses of Romans chapter six. The first one is what he, what he talks about when he talks about being baptized into Jesus Christ, verse three. Um, so, so from the perspective of Romans verse six, verse three, what, when was I? When were you? What he, what Paul calls here, Baptized into Jesus Christ. When was I baptized into Jesus Christ? Uh, and, and what is that baptism? Well, uh, let me hasten on to say that I believe this is not referring to water baptism. You see, water baptism is a visible expression of this, what I would put, say, call spiritual baptism that is here referred to as being baptized into Jesus Christ. Spiritual baptism is important. It's it's, it's appeal to the righteous of our faith. But, but I, I believe that when he talks about us being baptized into Jesus Christ here, I believe he's saying that the moment that I, in repentance and in faith, embrace Christ and his atoning sacrifice for myself, I am justified, I'm made right with God, I'm in At That moment I'm baptized into Jesus Christ. so, when I am baptized into Jesus Christ, all of the benefits of, of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are, are reckoned unto me. They are conferred to me. They are available to me. Do I understand that? Do I need to say that again? All of the benefits, and the benefits are enormous as you read Romans chapter 6, all of the benefits of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are available to me as a result of me baptized, being baptized into Jesus Christ. Folks, well, uh, what I discover about us so much is that we take, we, we receive the, the gift of salvation as a package, right? You don't receive a number of packages. You, you receive it as a package. But what happens so often for us is that we only open the package part way. Maybe we we'll open the package to where to, to forgiveness, and we just stay there. <laughs> but but there's much more <laughs> to the package of salvation than forgiveness. <laughs> and 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 opening the package all the way will deeply enrich and bless the Well, you have to term old man in verse 6. The phrase old man is also used in Ephesians 5.22, Colossians 3, nine, and is there compared to the new man, which we are in Christ. But what is this old man? Um, sister, it's not your husband. Okay? Um, we lived with the mountain people for five years before we went to northern Ontario the, the, mountain, the, ladies, the mountain ladies had, had a way of referring to their husbands uh, li- as the old man. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what he's talking about here. I believe that the old man uh, is, is compared to the new man, which are in Christ. The old man is, is referring to all that we were in Adam chapter 5 uh, before uh, we embraced Christ. Putting it in a different way and saying it in a bit different way, but I believe I'm trying to say the same thing when he says, when I say that the old man is referring to my old lifestyle that I walked in, the old blueprint for living that I used to live by before I was baptized into Jesus Christ. That's the old. That's the old life. The old man is the old life. Okay. So think of it in that term. Then, then he talks about the body of sin in verse six. And, and please note several things about this term, the body of sin. I, I believe that the body of sin is not synonymous to the old man. No, notice what, how he says it in verse six: knowing this that our old man is crucified, and it should be has been crucified. Past him, the old man has been crucified with him. That and that—that that is the that meaning of in order that. The body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we don't have to keep serving sin only. So you see that even in the reading of the text, the the old man is not synonymous to the the body of sin. But what is the body of sin? Um, and, And let me also, I must also emphasize the fact that the body of sin is not to be equated with our physical body here. Uh, the body of sin refers to what is often referred to as our sin nature, our fallen human nature, uh, the, the mass of sin in me as Lansky's interpretation of it. Uh, I take it to be referring to sin as an operative principle within my human nature, which, which will express itself through uh, my physical body. But it's not really talking about our physical body per se here when it talks about the body of sin. Now the the third uh, word that I want you to uh, notice here, it says that the body of sin might be destroyed; that henceforth we need not continuing to to serve sin. The, what what does he mean by the body of sin being destroyed? Does he mean that the, that the body of sin, the mass of sin, the sin principle in me, the sin nature in me is not annihilated? Well, normally no, we lose, use the word destroyed that way. But that's not the way it's used here, because the term destroyed, the word, the Greek word is katartiko, is also translated "abolished" in Second Timothy chapter one verse ten, where it says he has abolished death and has brought life and and, and uh, uh, like into into perspective. But so the the word katartiko uh, here, as it's used to it, it destroy, means to reduce to inactivity. I'm going to. Uh, want well, to know more about that uh, in my second message here. It means to make ineffective, to cause to be inoperative. Inoperative is a good word here. Uh, it does not mean to eradicate, to annihilate, to put out of existence. Uh, Leon Moore says it means to render powerless, and that's also good. You see, sin as an operating principle in me is now rendered powerless. Is not it's not annihilated. It is now put out of commission by virtue of the fact that we are now made partakers of a new divine nature. The power said in me as a new creature in Christ is now broken. Go ahead and act upon that fact, that reality, because it's really true. <laughs> and then, and so that's why he, in, in verse 11, you notice he says, and, and so go ahead and reckon the bond, and reckon yourself to, to be dead and the word reckon here is the same word that he used in chapter 4 when he talked about imputing in, imputed, uh, imputed uh, counted and reckon, they're all the same word it's the same word here so and here I hear him saying just go ahead I'm and act upon the fact because, because, it, because it's really true that that's what happens that you are that, that the body of sin in the economy of God has been, has, has been rendered powerless uh, in, in and through Christ. It's not broken. A, a Puritan saying says something like this. God does not take away our ability to sin. and gives us the power not to sin. I'm saying it well. So shall we continue in sin? The answer is no, yes, thank you. (laughs) I would have liked to have heard that from all of you. (laughs) Shall we continue it then? Uh, Yes, (laughs) Um, Yes, no, definitely not, because sin is incongruous. You know what I mean by incongruous? It's inconsistent. It's incongruous, it's inconsistent with what took place when you were baptized into Jesus Christ. Well, God bless you as to further explore Romans chapter 6.